Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. My name is Glenn and this is episode 58. And before we jump into the episode, I've got to give you some background as to what what you're about to experience. Uh, Our guest today, as you'll hear in a moment, is Shane Claiborne. And Shane, if you don't know him, is an activist. He's an author, uh, a theologian, and he was a pretty big voice in the emerging church movement that got big in the early 2000s, which was like way back when I was in college. And I did the math, and we're talking 19 years ago, I was in college. That That's just bonkers, because it feels like yesterday, and that makes me feel really old. So we're going to just keep on talking past that. Uh, but anyways, he wrote a book called The uh, Irresistible Revolution. And that made a really big impact on me when I was young. And he also most recently wrote a book called Beating Guns, which is actually about uh, gun violence and his mission to collect guns and turn them into garden tools, uh, which was inspired by the prophets of the Old Testament. I think I think it's uh, Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, who talked about taking swords and actually beating them and turning them into plowshares. So, so the idea of the book and what Shane has been doing is taking these weapons that are designed to kill and actually molding them into vessels that give life through farming and uh, growing growing food. And so I originally planned to record this episode uh, back in the spring, but uh, Jordan, who's my daughter, on the day that we were supposed to record, actually had 104 fever, which climbed to the 105 range and was still going up. So we obviously had to take her to the doctor. And so Shane was obviously like, yeah, no, no worries at all. So canceled the, the, the recording, and we went back and forth trying to figure out a date to reschedule. Finally landed on a day in August, and turns out in August, though, Shane found himself in Tennessee on the day of our recording, trying to get the governor to stop the execution of a man who was on death row. Uh, so like I said, right, he's an activist. And one of the things he's super passionate about is urging the government to create alternatives to the death penalty. And so he was there doing what he could on behalf of this guy on death row who has been trying to turn his life around with the help of Shane and other people, uh, doing everything he could to uh, get uh, like an ear with the governor and talk to him and uh, get this thing overturned. I do not know how it turned out, uh, by the way. I have not followed up with him. I wanted to kind of give some space between that moment and uh, when I asked him. So I'll probably follow up in a few weeks. But that's what Shane was doing. And uh, he wanted to do the interview anyways, this this guy. I was like, man, we could do it another day. We don't have to do it today. But he really wanted to get it done. Uh, so he stepped away from what he was doing in Tennessee, uh, sat down in the local cafe, and uh, we, we talked. And so I wanted to give you that background to the episode because the recording, uh, honestly, it's not the best. At times, it's really hard to hear him. Um, at other times, my voice is a lot louder than his. And I tried my best to clean up the audio, like I'm no professional at that kind of stuff, but I had to kind of cut and splice some parts so I could raise the volume on his voice uh, and then lower the volume on mine. Uh, and since some parts of the audio are so low, uh, like just to give you the heads up, if you don't usually listen to this with headphones, you might want to do it this time just because uh, I found that listening with headphones uh, let me hear almost everything that Shane said, even the spots where he was a little bit lower. Uh, so if you have headphones nearby, you might want to uh, plug those in and uh, give it a shot. Now, he said he would be happy to re-record the episode like we could do it again. But I, mean, I don't know. You know, I just feel like the roughness of the audio kind of goes with the roughness of what he's tackling in the world, right? 
Like, like he's an activist against gun violence, death penalty, racism, and, and so much more. He literally goes up against the biggest weapon of the empire, and he refuses to back down. Like he believes in creating a peaceful revolution uh, that's going to bring all sorts of horrible violence to its knees. And so by him stepping away from what he was doing to then talk to me in the middle of a noisy cafe, I just felt like this episode, the way that it is, like this is Shane Claiborne. And this is why I wanted to talk to him. Uh, kind of a, a brief agenda, I guess, of what the episode is about. And we spent some time talking about his time in uh, Calcutta with Mother Teresa. He actually worked alongside of her and her sisters. Uh, talked about the importance of not just storing up theology in our brains, but exercising it in our lives. And how since we, we can find Jesus in the eyes of the poor, uh, America's obsession with being rich and glamorous doesn't always create much room for us to see Christ. So we talk about some heavy stuff, some good stuff. Uh, so stick around, plug in those headphones, and uh, let's get this thing done. This is episode number 58, uh, my conversation with Shane Claiborne. Enjoy. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the What If Project podcast. Uh, today, we are joined by someone who has made a uh, big impact on me and my faith journey specifically uh, through his book, The Irresistible Revolution, that we're going to chat a little bit about today. Uh, the one and only Shane Claiborne. So Shane, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you. Yeah, thanks, Glenn. Great to be with you, buddy. And you're in a cafe right now. I am. I'm in a, a the Frothy Monkey, I think it is, cafe in Nashville, Tennessee, my home state. So um, yeah, good to be with you. So if it sounds like we're having coffee together, we kind of are. <laughs> I am. I have a pretty little mocha with a flower on it here. I was expecting a monkey in the frothy monkey, but I'm going to settle for the flower. But it's, yeah, that's no, good, man. It's good to be with you and talk about some, some stuff that matters. There's a lot going on in the world right now. Absolutely. So thank you. And, and I do, first, I do want to say thank you, not only for coming on the podcast, but uh, thank you for the work that you do, uh, that you have done, that you continue doing. Um, I first heard about you way back when I was in, uh, early on in my youth ministry degree at Nyack College. And yeah. uh, your your books and teachings have made a big impact on my life and my faith, and I know a lot of my friends as well. So, uh, thank you for the work that you do. Absolutely, brother. Yeah, it's good uh, stuff. I know all the people who have, you know, helped speak into my life, and I read their books, and you know, they. they so I'm it's just a gift to be able to throw out whatever truth I've found, and um, I'm I'm glad to meet you, man. Yeah, man. I feel like you've mentored me from afar. <laughs> Put it that way. That's sweet. <laughs> so before we jump into the conversation, uh, for those of our listeners who maybe don't know who you are, maybe not so familiar with you, uh, who is who is Shane Claiborne? Who are you? What do you do? What makes you tick? All that kind of stuff. Yeah, man. Well, I'm a Tennessee boy. I grew up down on the east side of Tennessee and uh, outside of Knoxville, Tennessee. And uh, that's why being down here in Nashville is a big deal because my home state has started executions again. So as you know, and uh, your listeners may not, but we're down here trying to work for alternatives to the death penalty, you know? Um, mm. And uh, so I know a lot of the men who are on death row here and um, they've asked the governor to come pray with them. And that's what we're asking because, you know, proximity is everything. And that's what happened for me. I went from East Tennessee um, up to Philadelphia and 
was introduced to a, a group of homeless families, mostly mothers with children, that were um, they were had nowhere to go. They were on the waiting list for affordable housing, and shelters were full. And so, out of desperation, they moved into an abandoned Catholic church building and started living there. This was in 1995, and uh, I was a student. This back in the 1900s when, um, <laughs> and uh, I, we heard about them, and um, and and that was really an eye-opening experience for me. Um, they had hung a banner on the front of the cathedral that said, "How can we worship a homeless man on Sunday and ignore one on Monday?" Mm. And um, we were students and organized a student movement of solidarity with them, um, and then finished school and ended up. Um, moving into that neighborhood just a, a mile or two from the, the church and um, uh, a little community we call the Simple Way. So we're on the north side of Philly and been building a little village there for the last 20 years. So we've got uh, community gardens and murals and um, after you like, like stuff we do with the kids and the, the fire hydrants are open and the blocks closed this summer wow. and got um, a lot of food that we share. So there's a uh, all kinds of things uh, that we got going on, and, um, and yeah, that, that's that's been all part of my development. And um, um, I studied sociology and the Bible when I was in college, and I like how uh, Carl Bart said that we got to read the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. Yeah, uh, you know, so that our faith doesn't just become a ticket into heaven. Hmm. And that that's um, that's you know what really. Um, happened for me. I, I'm studying the Bible. I'm studying sociology, and, and that opened my eyes up to a lot of things, like connecting my faith to caring about immigrants. Um, because Jesus said, "When you welcome the stranger, you welcome me." You know, it, it caused me to connect my faith to caring about gun violence and the death penalty. Hmm. But all that really, like at the end of the day, is is sort of. Um, anchored in my neighborhood and a lot of those relationships have been what shaped and formed me too, man. So mm. yeah, that's what we're kind of up to. That's awesome. How did you get involved? Just out of curiosity with um, doing things like you're doing in Tennessee today, like how, what did that look like for you to get involved with helping try to change the death penalty laws and, you know, approach governors to try to come and pray with people? Like how did you, what was, what was it like for you to step into that? Well, I, I, like I said, I think proximity makes a huge difference. So mm -hmm. sometimes we don't have a compassion problem as much as a proximity problem, right? Like, like these issues don't always affect all of us. And so it, in some ways, we, um, we've got to grow a little bit more proximate to those who are hurting mm -hmm. from the injustices. Um, so living in North Philadelphia, like gun violence became... Uh, something that was personal because we just saw too many people lose their lives, you know. Um, and it's the same with the death penalty. Like a bunch of years ago, I had a friend that took me in and um, to to unit two, or, or like that, that's technically what it's called here. It's, but it's Tennessee's death row. And I met these guys, and I mean, one of the first things that struck me was um, how normal it was. You know, we're sitting around the table. Uh, uh, telling the stories of what Jesus has done in our lives and we're singing songs and hearing some spoken word poetry and, you know, reading the Bible and it was amazing. So um, one of the first times I went to visit the men, 
I bumped into the governor. We were at the same conference speaking, and um, I talked to him a little bit. And then I came to the men and I said, um, "Hey, I just talked with the governor, who literally is the one who kind of holds the power in this situation of mm. life and death." And I said, "What would you guys say to him?" And the first man that spoke up was a, was a, a fellow named Kevin Burns. He's known as KB, and he said. You know what I'd say? I'd tell the governor he needs to come pray with us. And all the other guys just said amen. And that's really where this came from. But it is, you know, when it's a really human invitation. And I think that's part of the problem that perpetuates injustice is when we allow ourselves to be detached. Um, yeah. And so when, when I think injustice has to become personal hmm. before we can make you know, real change happen, and it's what creates the fire in our bones. And for a lot of people, that's not an intellectual thing. You know, they've grown up in situations where the color of their skin or their geography has made these things very personal to them. But others of us, especially those of us that are white, um, in some ways it is a choice that we need to make to um, allow ourselves to be a little closer to those who are suffering in the world. Yeah. I think that's true in like so many different areas. Because as you're talking, I'm thinking of myself. Like I, I work for uh, Apple, and I grew up in a very, um, like a real church world, very conservative church world, and not really around very many people who are gay and things like that. And at Apple, I work with a lot of LGBTQ people, and I've so I always had compassion for people, but didn't really have the proximity. And once I got the proximity to people, I started to work alongside of them, uh, befriend them. I get to know their story. All of a sudden, I started to become more vocal about different things yeah. uh, just because of that proximity. So I think that's a really good point. Yeah, I mean, for, for me too, you know, I, I grew up in a the, the town I grew up in, just to give you a sense of it, in East Tennessee, Mar Maryville is, um, was a really small segregated town. And we had the Confederate flag on our pretty much everything in our high school. I mean, it was on football hmm. uniforms and on you know, murals on our walls and stuff. And, um, and, and, and I think that's why, you know, when I came to college, I put my, my high school yearbook on a shelf and someone saw it and was like, they had the Confederate flag in it. And they're like, oh my gosh, what's that? And I was like, oh, it's my high school yearbook. They're like, it's also not cool, man. You know, and we talk. And so sometimes we see the world through a certain lens. Hmm. And I think that's part of the problem with our country. Like one of the fault lines in our country right now is some of us are seeing the lens um, of the, our lens through looking at the world has been through a certain degree of white privilege. And there are other folks that are seeing the world and their experience is very different from that. You know, so when you ask people questions like, you know, does racial bias affect our criminal justice system or our policing of neighborhoods and white folks a lot of times say, uh, no, you know, you have a few bad apples, but mm. the system works. And you, know, you ask people of color and they have very different answers. So, yeah. But it's, you know, with all with so many of these things, you mentioned, you know, LGBTQ plus uh, folks. And for me in college, I had been armed in some ways with scriptures um, yeah. to, to talk about, um, you know, the, the six or seven verses in scripture that I felt at the time, you know, condemned. Um, same-sex relationships, and, and then I met a young man, actually a really good friend of mine in college, who told me he was gay, and he grew up in the church, and he had gone to retreats to pray away the gay, you know, literally try to recondition him as a, a, you know, not to be gay, and he said, none of that worked, and, and he's crying, and he said, um, 
I ended up just feeling like God made a mistake when God made mm. And I, I just remember all of my theology kind of falling aside and like I'm, I'm watching him cry and I'm just going, man, Jesus is with this brother of mine, you know, and at the church, if he can't find a home in the church, then I really wonder uh, who we've become or are we really um, offering the love and grace of Jesus, you know, so, but, it, but it, again, it was it was personal, you know, I think yeah. we throw Bible verses around, we can throw statistics around, and, but I don't know too many people that, you know, hear a statistic and they're like, or a Bible verse, they're like, oh, you know, come think of it, I really don't like guns anymore, you know, like, right. it's when it becomes personal that, so part of what I feel like our, our urgently important work is in the church and in the world is to amplify the voices that people are not listening to. You know, originally a lot of our, we, we heard a lot of people saying we need to be a voice for the voiceless. Hmm. But sometimes I think we actually need to be amplifying the voices and pass the mic and stand alongside people rather than to stand up for people. Amen. So a lot of the work that I do is kind of uh, just coming alongside folks um, um, and trying to put my um, whatever I have alongside them so more and more people listen, you know? That's good. I love that. Um, I want to pick your brain a little bit today about your book, um, Irresistible Revolution. And the tagline is living as an ordinary radical. And so I guess I'll start at the, the title. Uh, what would you say, what is the revolution and why is it irresistible? Well, there, there's, there's hardly any way that you can look at Christianity and think that it wasn't revolutionary. I mean, mm. um, I mean you can look at what it is now and say that, but not in the early days or even sure. if you read the gospel. And the gospel of Luke starts with the mighty being passed from their thrones and the lowly being lifted up the hungry being filled with good things and the rich being sent away empty. I mean, I think if some people actually read this, it would be like, whoa, Jesus was a socialist or something. <laughs> right. but, um, it, was really, it wasn't about another ism. Like, um, you know, I, I don't, sometimes people use all these, you know, are you a, a you know, socialist or communist or all capitalist? And mm. I think Jesus was an existential bummer that blew away a lot of our categories and, um, you know, all of our, our political camps, and there were political camps at the time of Jesus. You know, you had Pharisees and Sadducees and the Essenes, and he's kind of, he's kind of pulling out the best in each of them and challenging their words. And he's, he's kind of creating something altogether new. Mm-hmm. I, I think um, uh, he, he, from the very beginning of his birth, he is subverting power, the power of this world. So when he says, you know, the last will be first, the first will be last, it was it was really revolutionary language. I mean, mm. you, you think of, he was accused of being, uh, of, of, you know, insurrection. The early Christians were accused in the book of Acts, and they said that they were um, creating havoc all over the empire, and they were, they were declaring that there was another emperor named Jesus. So their language was Jesus is Lord, and every time they were saying that, they were saying Caesar is not. Mm-hmm. And they had a different way of hoping and putting there. So, you know, we wrote a book, Jesus for President, that is kind of about that political imagination. Of what, what does it mean to see that our ultimate um, hope is in Jesus and our ultimate um, 
dream is that the kingdom of God, God's dream for the world, to come on earth as it is in heaven. So that 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 um, um, you know, if we, if we look at the scripture and we see Jesus saying the last person, first and last, what does that look like? You know, in our mm. family, Jesus is you welcome the, the immigrant, you welcome or the you know, you he said you welcome the stranger, you welcome me. What does that mean for the refugees? So I think I think it really challenges the world that we live in. In the early Christians, they were called enemies of the state. They were executed by the state. They were mm. accused of about everything, including yeah. cannibalism, because they had this weird practice of, um, you know, eating the body and blood of Jesus. Right. You know, but they had all these peculiar, total reorientation. And I think what makes it irresistible is that we're being called, being compelled by love. And, and love, I think, is our deepest longing, but it's also something that we. We have a lot that we hide behind, you know, that, that kind of separates us from what I think love requires of us and hmm. invites us into. That's good. It almost seems like, you know, hearing you describe, like, why the gospel was so revolutionary uh, back then, it almost feels like we have lost that in the church today. It just feels like it has a much different feel. It doesn't, doesn't challenge the system as much as it seems like it did in the early church. Yeah, well, you don't get killed for, like, charity. You get killed, I think, for, you know, living in a revolutionary love. And that's what the yeah. early Christians were doing. It was disruptive, you know. It was mm. challenging the status quo. But you look at great followers of Jesus all through history, the martyrs, of, and even more recent folks, like Martin Luther King, you know. He was, we've come to, like, really valorize, like, really make a, of iconic figure of Dr. King, but he, we have to remember he was killed. You know, he was he was very unpopular at times, especially when he spoke out against the Vietnam War. Mm. And at one point, um, folks said of Dr. King, they said, "You're maladjusted," and he really embraced the word. He said, "You're right, I am maladjusted. We live in a world that's become way too adjusted to injustice. You know, a mm. world that's become way too adjusted to." racism and inequity and violence and we need some maladjusted people in the world so i, I do i think it, it really grieve, must grieve god's heart that too many christians i think we've just kind of been defenders of the status quo rather than the prophecy you know the, the kind of prophets of resistance to, um, mm. and, and 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 really challenging the things that are out of sync with god's heart and certainly this is a time that we're living in to, to um you know with the same love of Jesus that he flipped over tables in the temple like we, we can we can you know I think be folks that are committed to revolutionary love that um, crushes systems but not the people within them you know like uh, we, we've got some kids in Philly that wrote a play um, and they have a song and it said that that's about saving the key from the crown he's wearing <laughs> you know and you look at even the people in power and I think they're suffering from racism and mm. you know from greed and some of the seven deadly sins and so like God God cares about the oppressed and God cares about the oppressors um, but certainly Jesus from the moment he was born as a baby refugee Herod was killing and you know separating children from their families killing children and Jesus was born into that world, and he's executed on the cross. And um, even his execution um, was a parody of the coronation and the crowning of the emperor. I mean, if you hmm. think about it, um, I mean, sometimes it just seems, you know, kind of it gets mundane to us, but like he was, his throne was a cross, and his crown was made of thorns. And literally, biblical um, scholars show how his, the stages of Jesus' execution actually mirrored in this kind of 
political satire um, in you know holy and sacramental way, like they mirrored the coronation of the emperor, hmm. spinning that whole system on its head. When Jesus rides a a baby borrowed donkey in the Passover before his resurrection, he was making a spectacle. I think of um, he's a different kind of king. You know, he came to wash feet, not to kill people. He came to ride a donkey, not a war horse with an entourage of soldiers. You know, and he even says when he's being convicted um, uh, before the authorities, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my disciples would fight to defend me. So it was a revolution of love, hmm. nonviolence. Hmm. I love that phrase that you used earlier, disruptive love. I'm going to be pondering that for a while. That was good. You know, when Roman says we're not to conform to the pattern of this world, but to be transformed um, by the renewing of our mind, it's an invitation to live with a kind of holy imagination, you know, and Jacques Ellul, great French thinker Jacques Ellul said, I don't know where we got the notion that Christians are just meant to be, you know, normal defenders of the status quo. Like Christians have literally throughout history been um, holy mischief makers, you know, troublemakers, people who um, are, go to jail and are killed and are disruptors of the counterfeit peace, you know, of, of empire. And they really want the full peace of God where um, especially the poor uh, are, are able to live and thrive. That's really good. You, uh, you share in the book that um, this idea of living as an ordinary radical was really influenced heavily by the work you did with Mother Teresa in Calcutta. And so I was wondering, you know, first of all, can you talk a little bit about what that was like? Because that's not an experience that obviously everybody um, has had. Uh, but number two, more importantly, uh, for this conversation, uh, what did you learn from working in Calcutta that you have brought forward into your, your daily life as Shane Claiborne and your ministry here in North America? Like obviously two different places, two different parts of the world. But I'm wondering, how did your experience there kind of influence what you do, how you live your life here every day? Yeah, so, um, well, it really began for me when we, you know, we're, we're reading the Bible, reading the Sermon on the Mount in, in college, and we're asking ourselves, okay, this, you know, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Um, when I was hungry, did you feed me? Like, all these things, like, who's, who's actually living out that? Um, we... We read about a lot of great saints through history, like St. Francis and others, but then they were all, you know, passed on. But Mother Teresa was still alive. So we decided we had read a lot about her. We had, you know, watched a documentary, and we were really um, inspired. So we, we wrote her a letter and then finally ended up calling her. And to folks that knew her, it's not that surprising. She just picked up the phone. And, um, and we, you know, I asked her if we could come work with her because we were wanting to figure out how to follow Jesus and she said yeah and we worked in the morning um, I worked in the orphanages in the morning and I worked in the home for the dying in the afternoon spent a summer there I, I went back since then but I, I the first time we went was um, in the late 90s and right before she died and um, uh, it was an incredibly transformative experience there's a lot of things I learned I mean I think one of the the, 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 the truest thing that Mother Teresa said over and over that shaped our community in Philly is that we aren't called to do great things. We're called to do small things with great love. Hmm. And what's important isn't how much we do, but how much love we put into doing. 
So, you know, it's, it's not just about how many people we feed every week, but it's do people feel loved as we, you know, mm-hmm. our relationships develop in people's lives. And, you know, are we treating people who have names or are they numbers and all those things? So, um, that was very true of Mother Teresa. I mean, there, there are lots of other things I think I, I learned in India too, where a lot about prayer, you know, prayer just being in the presence of God. The sisters did just grueling work every day, uh, lifting dying people off the streets and caring for them as they died. Um, uh, and so they had a very robust prayer life. But part of that was just being with Jesus. Mm. And it was praying that the Holy Spirit would fill us so we would have the strength to keep going. And, and prayer was, you know, for me growing up in, in youth group was just about bringing all of our requests to God. Me too. I think that's a part of prayer. But I think mm. what I learned in India that a, a prayer is not, not just us trying to get God to do what we want God to do, but it's very much about us being transformed into who God wants us to be. Hmm. so that we can participate in God's really redemptive work in the world and have the energy to keep going so that we would say, you know, the life I live, I no longer live, but Jesus lives in me. And that, that means having a real prayer, you know, a prayerful contemplative life where we're constantly inviting the Spirit to live in us and um, seeing these songs that I sing in youth group like, Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary. You know, like I kind of heard those with new ears where it's like that we're actually praying that we would be vehicles of God's love and transformation in the world. You know, and um, that's an incredible idea. That, um, it's also, you know, Mother Teresa, every morning she wanted to have communion. Hmm. And uh, we asked about that one day. And uh, one of the sisters said, yeah, we do it every morning because you've heard the saying, we are what we eat. Hmm. She said, "That's what we're, we're remembering every morning is that we're actually the ones being transformed. So, you know, we're, we're becoming what we need. That we would, you know, be as, as the scripture says that we would be the body of Christ to the world. That we would live in a way that, that literally God's our hands are our God's hands, our feet are God's feet. So that that's some wild stuff that you can think about forever, you know. But I, I think I just began to like scratch the surface on some of that." And then, as you said, you know, what, what do we bring back? One of the things that Mother Teresa often said is she said, how feathers are everywhere if we'll only have eyes to see. Mm. So find your Calcutta. And, you know, when I went to India, I, I thought, you know, I might end up staying in India. But one of the things that we actually felt was quite the contrary. It was like that we felt God really calling us to come back here and figure out how to live for for Jesus, you know, in our, in, in North Philadelphia and in the U.S., so mm. uh, we came back really, you know, kind of uh, confident that the spirit of God was going to do something um, among us in, in Philadelphia. That's awesome. What place would you say that contemplative prayer prayer has in your your life today? Because that's that's a new kind of concept for me, just because for me as well, like growing up, um, Christian school and church bible college and stuff you know prayer was always very vocal on my end and not a whole lot of silence and so i've recently been challenging myself to be uh, more uh, understand that prayer is just being in the presence of god and sometimes not saying anything so what does that look like just out of curiosity in your own life today i I think that's what i what i learned like you know a part of the way sisters prayed was they would spend Literally, it felt like an eternity to me. Like it was, it felt very, when you're not used to sitting in silence, it feels so mm. long. But they would sit for 
I don't know, maybe 30 minutes, just before the cross. Um, and, and, it, and often it's called adoration, you know, adoring Jesus yeah. and, and being with Jesus. And I came to think of some of that as like, when you're first getting to know someone, you do a lot of talking, you know? Yeah. The more you, you, especially now that I'm married, the more that you love someone, the more you can appreciate just being together and not having to talk all the time, you know? I mean, yeah. It's not, there's something even holy about just being, recognizing that we are, are um, committed to each other. And so I think some of prayer doesn't need a lot of words. Um, yeah. There's certain scriptures that talk about that. And some of the, the kind of religious people feel like they need to stand up and do all kinds of talking to God. Yeah. But um, some of prayer is, is Jesus said, it's just... Um, Sometimes it's beating our press, our chest, and saying, "God have mercy on me, a sinner." Sometimes it's just hearing the kind of gentle whisper that we are beloved, hmm. and, and, and resting in that. You know, even how we read scripture. I think a lot of us grew up with a lot of sermons with, um, you know, talking about all kinds of different pieces of scripture. I, mean, I love a good sermon, and it's sometimes like practices that, like, um, I mean, some folks may have not heard of Lectio Divina, but it's kind of a beautiful way of reading scripture where you read it several times in repetition and you just keep listening for things in it, you know. So I think all those are really ancient practices and are wonderful practices that are less about how our words and more about just the simplicity of absorbing some of that. I think sometimes we make some of these things a little bit too complicated, you know. Um, and we clutter a lot of things in the U.S. Just a couple. Our hamburgers <laughs> to our theology you know it gets just so cluttered so when jesus says you know that we enter the kingdom like a child i think there's, there's sort of an innocence to some of this that we just need to um read the sermon on the mount every morning and go what if jesus meant that like i'm going to try to live those words out today you know so what gandhi did a part of his prayer life was reading the sermon on the mount regularly um, and even though he had a very complicated, you know, spirituality kind of a blended different religions, I think like um, Gandhi, um, when he was asked about Christianity, he said, "I love Jesus. I mm. just wish the Christians acted more like him." Yeah, you know, and he was he was baffled by the, oh. the beauty um, and the the, the um, immensity of the call in the Sermon on the Mount to sell mm. everything we have to afford. So you know, and, and to love our enemies and, and to uh, all those things that we see there, you know, not to worry about tomorrow. And what does that mean for your 401k? You know, like right. some, some of this stuff, we've, we, we've really kind of, uh, in some ways, cluttered it, maybe because we're we're um, scared of it. You know, uh, it's, yeah. it's, uh, I think it was Mark Twain that said, it's not the parts of the Bible I don't understand that disturb me, it's the parts of the Bible I do understand that you know? <laughs> Right. So speaking of uh, complicating things in the U.S., I, I have a question for you that I've been trying to uh, process after I reread your book. Um, you say in the book that uh, one of the things that Calcutta taught you is that, that God doesn't dwell behind the temple veil, but in the eyes of the, those who are dying, uh, in the eyes of the poor, uh, the ordinary, and the mundane. And so I've, I've been trying to, I've been mulling this over in my head. Um, and I'm going to try to process this, so so bear with me. But uh, where has where has America gone wrong? And I know I know that's that's a loaded question. But uh, what I'm asking is like, why has Westernized Christianity like missed this? And I ask that because like in my upbringing, all through church, Sunday school, 
uh, even seminary. Like I came away with this picture of God who was more like, quite honestly, like Zeus than he was a leper uh, or an abused yeah. mom or an addict or an orphan. And the focus was like always so much on his strength, you know, his power, his greatness, his omnipotence that like anything weak or outcast or mundane was almost like tossed to the side as we were taught to tap into God's power so that we can remain strong and always push on as he did. But when I read your book, I really came away thinking like if Jesus is in the eyes of the weak, and that must mean that being weak isn't really all that bad of a thing. And that like all the pressure I've been taught to put on myself to be strong and mighty like Jesus is kind of, kind of silly. Like, does that make sense? And like, why has American Christianity missed this? And if we were to get this, like what might change if we were to understand that? Yeah. So that's a great, it's a great thing to to talk about. I, I, and, and first of all, I think like, in one sense, God is, is, is really everywhere. And it's almost like if we, if we say God is not here, that's where God's very likely to show up, you know? Um, uh, and I think Jesus challenges that too. Like we say, well, you know, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. So like what centurions are the devil and Jesus is to a centurion, you know, I'm not seeing faith like this before, you know? Right. So I think we got to be careful. <laughs> to say like God is here and not here. And that's exactly what Jesus does to the religious elite that thought they had the corner on the, the market, you know, mm-hmm. and Jesus says to them, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom ahead of you. So basically he's saying like, whoever you think God is not working in, um, God can definitely show up there. You know, I mean, literally it could be more striking than that, you know, telling the teachers of the law, the tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom ahead of them, you know? But I, and I think when it comes to the temple, Jesus was was Jewish, and so he was going to synagogue. He did Passover, so I think it's really important. To, like, like because some of now that I've written the book, ten whatever it was, you know, ten years ago, there's a lot of Christ, there's a lot of folks that are sort of post-Christian or ex-Christian that say, "Well, I want Jesus, but not the church. You know, I want to be spiritual, but not religious." And I, I think this is kind of a, a dangerous. Um, dualism that we you know but i because what i think is that jesus is at work inside and outside and what happened um when the veil of the temple was split open i think is it was god just just ripping out of that particular confine Mm. of religiosity right so it's not that, that god doesn't work through temple worship but god is bigger than that so now like jesus is healing people with mud and spit you know and and like like god's working outside the box um and 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 so i think of like what does that look like for us today and what you said i think is that the the sacraments are not just what happens in the inside the temple but um like we 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 look into the poor and we can see jesus in his most distressing disguises as brother Teresa said when we're putting children in cages um, of immigrant families, like we're doing that to Christ, mm. um, and literally, like it doesn't get get much holier than welcoming foreigners. In fact, the scripture says that when we welcome the foreigner, we can we, we may be entertaining angels unaware, right? Or, or that we or when we welcome the stranger, we welcome Christ. So this is really holy word, and um, and I think we, we we've got to kind of remember that, especially in this particular time. Um, and when you say what, what kind of went wrong in America, one of the things um, 
that that I would say is that we kind of branded everything with Christianity. Hmm. And when you do that, you lose the essence and the distinctiveness of the kind of countercultural call of Christ. So like, for instance, we created an entire theology that justified the massacre of Native people hmm. and things like the doctrine of discovery. And we, you know, created, like we abused scripture to justify the enslavement of Africans and some really terrible sins that we've never dealt with, I think, in an adequate way. Um, so what happens is our Christianity, um, some forms of it have kind of become toxic, you know, um, uh, that literally it's hard to know where America begins and where Christianity is, you know, like they, they kind of have been fused together. Um, so I think one of our biggest dangers in America is the conflation of, of, of American nationalism that has kind of camouflaged itself as Christianity, but it really doesn't look like Jesus at all. And what's, what's a danger in all of that is that people are becoming inoculated. You know, when you get a watered-down version of a disease, that's the vaccine, it knocks it out of your system. Mm. And I think Christianity is not a disease, but it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful movement, and it spreads. Um, but when we're spreading a watered-down version of it, people reject that, and they think that they have rejected Christianity. But really, a lot of times, they just, they just rejected a version of Christianity that um, has betrayed many of the core values of Jesus. And that's, that's, I think, one of our biggest dangers. So... Wendell Berry, you know, he's a wonderful theologian. He said, our money can say in God we trust, but our economy looks like the seven deadly sins. Mm. Um, and, and so I think that, like the real litmus test for whether something's Christian or not is, does it look like Jesus? Mm. Are we doing the things that Jesus said? And Jesus said so much about caring for the widows and the orphans and the most vulnerable. And those are the very, you know, people that are in the most danger right now in our society. So God, I think God could care less how the Dow Jones is doing. God cares how the widows and the orphans and the poor and the immigrants are doing, how the people in prison are doing. Like these are, these are um, as Jesus said, the least of these. And when we do it under them, we do it under Christ. Mm, that's good. And I, I guess my, my, my follow-up question to that feels like, you know, what, what do we do? In America, what do we do as as churches in America to um, kind of get back to get back to that? And I guess what rings in my head is that quote from Mother Teresa: "To do small things with great love." I think that's a part of it. I think also yeah. for those of us that are coming out of white, um, especially white evangelicalism. I mean, that's my my backdrop, and um, we look at the state of it right now, and um, I think Donald Trump, it's been said really beautifully, Donald Trump did not change America, he rebuilt America. Mm. The same thing's true of white evangelicalism. It's Donald Trump changed the white evangelical church, but he did reveal it. Yeah. And when you know, 81% of white evangelicals voted for Trump, and many of them continue to defend things that are just indefensible. I mean, from Donald Trump's personal life to his public policies, that really um, contradict almost on a daily basis mm. the Beatitudes, you know, blessed are the poor, the merciful, the meek, you know, I mean, and, and really look more like the seven deadly sins, like that, 
we, we forfeit our moral credibility. Um, and and, and that, that's what I'm, you know, really concerned about. So I think one of the, 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 the best, you know, kind of anecdotes for sick Christianity is a better and more beautiful version of Christianity. So as Gandhi said, you know, be the change you want to see in the world. I think we want to be the change we, we want to see in the church. Mm. Um, uh, and, and the, you know, the, the answer to bad theology is not no theology, but it's good theology. Yeah. Um, some of that for white folks, I think, means leaning into communities of color um, and, and, and being mentored by pastors who are black and Latino and Native American and Asian. And, and, and because there's some things that we aren't, that are not easy to see on our own. Yeah. And thinking about the books that we read, you know, are the books that I read, are they all by, you know, white theologians or am I listening to a diversity of voices, especially in this current time that we're living in? Um, where I think what has happened is the, the, the white folks have held, held the power in this country and now some of that is changing and shifting. We're a more diverse country, we're a more diverse church. Um, and so there's kind of a grappling to hold the power that we've always had. But mm. um, so in, in some sense, when many people say make America great again, they're really saying make America white again. Yeah. And, and that's not even like really um, um, subtle anymore. You know, I mean, mm. overt like white nationalism. So and I, I think really what we've got to do, Glenn, is and this may sound a little trite, but we've really got to focus our eyes on Jesus again hmm. because the irony is that Jesus is the best corrective to what's gone wrong in white evangelicalism hmm. you know literally Jerry Falwell was asked it was a very powerful interview Jerry Falwell the president of Liberty University the biggest you know evangelical school in the country he was asked how he reconciles his fidelity to Jesus and to Trump and he said I do not look to Jesus when it comes to shaping my political ideas. Mm. And that's exactly the problem. You know, I think is that, that we literally um, think Jesus was, you know, had great moral teaching for individuals, but when it comes to the big issues of our age uh, and the policies of our country, Jesus, you know, is kind of irrelevant in that, that realm. So, so I, I think we, we've got to really come back to Jesus again. Um, and when, when Reverend Barber, um, who I've been, you know, following and working with and collaborating with, one of the things he says is, um, uh, Reverend Barber says, when we take our eyes off Jesus, we focus on things that Jesus did not focus much on. Mm. And we end up forgetting some of the things that Jesus never wanted us to forget. You know, mm. so we, we end up talking about, you know, six or seven verses of the Bible that are about, um, you know, same-sex relationships and we end up forgetting the 2000 verses of the bible that talk about <laughs> right. how we're to care for the poor yeah. yeah that's really good um one of the things i've always um admired about you and i'll end with this because i know you got i want to respect your time um but you just the way you talk about god and the bible is that the emphasis is always on action um you know beliefs are important but mental adherence to for example like the doctrine of Know, resurrection or whatever isn't as important as physically putting uh, resurrection into daily practice with the way that we live our everyday lives. So I'm wondering just how has your own reading of the Bible maybe evolved or changed over the years? Like, have you always been really focused on action or was there a time when you leaned 
really heavily into doctrine and belief and theology. And I ask that because like a lot of us on the, who listen to the podcast kind of going through, you know, the uh, deconstruction for lack of a better word of sorts, where we need to kind of read the Bible, think about faith differently. So I'm wondering, have you undergone any kind of shift like that in your past? And uh, what kind of advice would you have to people who are in that space right now? Yeah. So first of all, I, I, I think that historic Christianity has held two things together, and that is um, orthodoxy and orthopraxis. Orthodoxy is where we get doctrine, right? Mm-hmm. Like belief, um, the things that we believe. And, and then orthopraxis is our practices, you know, how do those flesh themselves out? How does our faith flesh itself out? So I, I don't want to lose those. I think they, they, they need to go together kind of like, the um, blades of scissors, you know, um, and there is some bad theology, and I think when they're there, um, that we've got to we've got to counter that with good theology. I mean, it's not it's not just from um, you know folks on the right either. I think there's folks that are saying, well, you know, the bodily resurrection of Jesus is not that important. Hmm. <laughs> right. I think, you know, they're, they're reading a different Bible and a different narrative of Christianity than I am, you know, right. there's other people that'll say, um, well, you know, like, we can come to different conclusions on the death penalty or immigration. I go, well, actually, man, I think these are really important things, you know, like, if, if our faith does not include welcoming the stranger, it's not Christianity, you know, right. like, we, yeah. can, we can yeah. debate how to best do that responsibly, but so, and when it comes to reading the Bible, this is what I think is so important, and it's related to that, um, is that we've sometimes read Jesus through the lens of the Hebrew Scripture or through the lens of Paul. That's kind of been our interpretation. We, we, we go, yeah, but Romans 13 says this. Yeah, but the Old Testament says this. You know, And I think it's just the opposite is what we need to do is read the, the Bible and the world interpret the world and the Bible through the lens of Jesus. Mm. So as I, I look at um, um, you know, verses of the Bible that can feel that they're in conflict with each other, Jesus becomes the referee. Mm. As I see a God like in the Hebrew scripture that can feel really big, you know, and I am who I am. And like Jesus puts flesh on that. So I can yeah. really see what God looks like in the way that I can wrap my hands around and also like follow you know i can follow jesus because i see how he lived and died um so um i mean i I think there's a lot of really good work peter ends um yeah uh writing on this rachel held evans um there's a lot of womanist theologians lisa sharon harper's a very good gospel i think there's a lot of people doing good work uh, Adam Hamilton, I think, too. But there's some really great books out, out there about how we read scripture. Um, and and um, uh, Rob Bell wrote a book on this. There's a lot of really, so, but, but I think, you know, um, it's sometimes we also get into the paralysis of analysis. You know, mm-hmm. we end up talking of theology maybe because it protects us from. Uh, <laughs> the, the, the responsibility that love would require us. So I right. think coffee is important, but you know, at the end of the day, um, uh, when we're gathered before Jesus, as he himself says in Matthew 25, like the questions we're going to be asked are, uh, 
not, not just doctrinal questions, you know, okay, uh, six days creation, was that, you know, literal or not? Right, you know, like, quiz uh, time, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, uh, virgin birth, but, you know, agree or disagree, like, it's right. not a doctrinal test, but at the, at the end of the day, what we're asked by God is, when I was in prison, did you come visit me? When I was a stranger, did you welcome me? When I was sick, did you take care of me? So it has everything to do with how our reading of scripture, how our prayer life, how our theology classes in college, like how do they end up translating um, into real concrete demonstrations of God's compassion and love and justice in the real world, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I don't think that our works earn our salvation. I believe Jesus is, the, you know, it's, our salvation is through Christ, but our works do demonstrate our salvation. And if, um, at the end of the day, I think if, if someone's going to say, are you Christian? We, can, we should be able to say, ask the poor. Mm. Ask the most vulnerable people. I, you know, ask the folks in prison who came to visit them, yeah. and they will tell you who the Christians are. Amen. Thank you so much awesome, for that. Yeah, man. Thanks for coming on. I know we're just about out of time, um, and I want to let you go because you got things to do there. Uh, but thank you yeah, for taking the time to come on. Time, man. Thank you so much, bro. Man. Absolutely. Thank you, man. Thank you, sir. Man, that was some good stuff, right? Man, I love, I love me some Shane Claiborne. Uh, that was so good. I, 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 I love his humility. Like, he has such a crazy story. Like, who in the world gets to go overseas? Uh, I mean, he called up Mother Teresa on the telephone, and she picked up the phone, right? Like, that is crazy. Then he goes over there and spends time with her and her sisters serving. I mean, just mind-blowing stuff. But I just love how humble he is about it, and I love how much he has taken what he learned there, and he's trying to apply it to what he does here. I think that's just so amazing and just so inspiring to me. So I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. Uh, I definitely got a lot out of it. Uh, a couple reminders. Number one, if you could do me a solid, head over to iTunes uh, or the podcast app, search What If Project, and give this thing a rating and a review. Uh, what I'm learning is that that works well with the algorithms. So if somebody, if, the, if like a podcast has a lot of ratings, uh, a lot of comments, a lot of stars, whatever, uh, that somehow plays in favor of the podcast being found when people search things that have to do with the podcast. So for instance, uh, right now we have like 30, I think nine reviews. Uh, so the, as, as that climbs, when people search for things like God, there's a greater chance that this podcast will show up in the list of other podcasts uh, that they find. So anyway, head over to iTunes, do that for me. That would be fantastic. And then lastly, uh, but certainly not least, Patreon, patreon.com slash whatifproject. If you want to support the show and want to support me in this wild, crazy adventure, uh, head over there. You can support the show financially anywhere from $3 a month all the way up to $30 a month. And you can also create your own tier if you want to. But every tier has its own reward, which is kind of cool. So uh, bonus blog posts, uh, bonus podcast episodes. Uh, there's one tier where I, ma I mail you a book every quarter. So really cool stuff. Head over there. Check it out. If you're able to support, that would be awesome. Right now we have, I think we're up to 11 patrons, which I'm really excited about. Um, 11 people have signed on to say, yeah, I'll support this thing. That's pretty rad. So thank you to all of you. 
Uh, I could not do what we're doing without you. Uh, your money is going to amazing places that help pay for the hosting fees, for the blog, uh, for the podcast, for the website. Um, it helped me go to Wild Goose in July. I bought my ticket there, uh, my parking ticket, my food, my gas, all that different kind of stuff. So thank you, thank you, thank you uh, for your generosity, for your encouragement, and for believing in what we are doing here. We are changing the world here at the What If Project podcast, and um, I owe it all to you, all of you listeners out there. Uh, thank you so, so much. So all that to say, uh, this has been wild. This is episode number 58. It was my conversation with Shane Claiborne, and uh, I will see you next week. Bye-bye.